Our scripture passage for today is found in John chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along. As I read aloud from the Word of God. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 33. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything, Jesus speaks to his disciples. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. (coughs) Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world, going back to the Father. And Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we give thanks for your words, for your promise that we can speak directly to the Father, asking in your name. And so we come in preparation for this sermon, this message this morning asking that you would have your way with our hearts and our lives. I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, which alone is holy and just and true, through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, changing human hearts and lives in a way in which human power is incapable of doing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the past several days, there's been a great deal of talk about prayer because of the tragedy, the evil wickedness, that occurred in Littleton, Colorado. Prior to this incident, I guess Littleton, Colorado, like any city in any nation, may rarely make it into the news, but the way which I knew Littleton, Colorado, was that the InterVarsity staff member who worked at my college in Minnesota moved with her husband out to Littleton, Colorado, and were ministering in InterVarsity through there. And now we know Littleton, Colorado for something much different. And it's said that there are no atheists in foxholes. The aftermath of the slaughter at Columbine High School, a school bearing the name of the Colorado State Flower, the flower of youth was cut short for a number of young people in that school. The school, the state, and the nation, indeed the world, have gone into shock once more over the evil wickedness of which man is capable. Yet we see again in this event, as we see in all the events of our days, how Christ is glorified despite and in the midst of the deepest tragedy and unthinkable violence. For there were young people among those killed who loved the Lord. The father of at least one of those murdered has spoken to the nation 
about the faith of his son and the reality of his own faith, which will bring him through this deep, deep sorrow. While the world is talking about hate, and indeed in some of the news uh, items that I saw and some of the interesting new uh, quasi-news things such as uh, chat rooms with uh, some of the people involved in this in Colorado in which uh, people from the nation write messages or questions. The thing that I see again and again, how could you ever forgive these people? You must hate them and you'll always hate them. And yet Christians involved in it are declaring that hatred is something that Christians must put away from them. <clears throat> Prayer is the answer, the solution in such dire straits when all else is beyond hope and beyond helping. The Lord God alone can make sense out of such awful tragedy, disorder, and evil. He alone can provide the resources necessary to bring forgiveness in place of bitterness and hatred, healing where medicine can accomplish nothing, and righteousness where all that is being exalted heretofore is wickedness. How can we approach this? By turning, as always, to the pages of Scripture for comfort and for wisdom and for guidance, for explanation. For in God's Word, we find comfort by seeing a perspective that is otherworldly. When we are caught in the sorrows of our world and cannot see hope beyond today, we find comfort by knowing that sin and wickedness and the devil will not, indeed, triumph forever. We find comfort in knowing that God's plans never fail, despite the publicity for and effectiveness of such great evil. We find comfort in knowing that we can seek the help of the Lord in the affairs of our world and know that he will grant us what we ask of him. The promise of our passage, the promises of our passage, are for a time such as this, a time in the lives of the disciples, these 11 apostles, a time of great desperation and fear, a time of hopelessness, a time when evil seemed to triumph. And the promises would be fulfilled with the completion of the work of Christ as he redeemed those whose faith is placed in him. The comparison between what would soon be accomplished and their present state could not be more significantly contrasted than by his promise that soon it would be within their grasp for them to, as he says in verse 24, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. In light of his words in verses 32 and 33, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. In this world, you will have trouble. The contrast there is readily apparent. You will ask, you will receive, your joy will be complete. Despite the reality of the scattering, the hopelessness, the despair, and the trouble in this world, which is a fact of human life and of the life even, indeed, of the followers of Christ. <clears throat> How would this dramatic change come about? How would they, existing in a world that was hostile to them, yet be able to take heart? <clears throat> Because of the accomplished fact that Christ declared, I have overcome the world. How could he state at this time, prior to his crucifixion, that he had overcome the world? Because the conditions were ripe. The conditions had been fulfilled for his sacrifice to be accomplished and to be effective. 
He had lived on earth among them a life that was completely without blemish and stain. He was completely without sin. There was no sin in Christ. And understand this clearly. And take this from here with you if you do not already understand it. If you do, embed it into your consciousness. The only way in which Christ's sacrifice is able to be effective for anyone is because he lived a completely virtuous life. No sin and fulfillment of all righteousness. Not only did he not obey, not disobey the laws and the will of his father, but also he did everything righteous and good that he was supposed to do and called upon to do. And so he was able to proclaim and declare in the present with the certainty of the future, I have overcome the world. Now, you and I, these disciples, we have not overcome the world. Through the power of Christ, we have been declared holy. But we have not overcome the world. Instead, the sin that is in us has overcome us. Without Christ and his sinless perfection, we are in a hopeless situation. We live in a time that may in many ways seem incomparable, perhaps even more evil than the time of the disciples. Yet we do not have that most evil event of events even in our day, which was the crucifixion of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this is not something with which we deal on a real, actual basis today as the disciples were about to deal with it in the hours to follow Christ's words to them. That most horrible of all evils has been accomplished and the disciples witnessed it. But here we are in a world full of immoralities of all kinds. A world in which we are piling up sin upon sin. A culture in which we not only accept sin, we embrace it and those who commit sin. And we go even farther, as it describes in the words of Scripture, by having people who promote sin. And we accept this and embrace it. Sin proliferates. It multiplies. It seems that there is no hope. Yet Christ has not only said, take heart, in verse 33, but his statement, take heart, was not just a, if you will. It was a command. It was an order. Take heart. The reason for this is because of his victory. I have overcome the world. His disciples are urged, exhorted, ordered, indeed, to take heart because of the victory of Christ. So the conditions must clearly be different than we often view them or consider them. It is not hopeless or futile. Instead, it is certain. It's sure. Not sure and certain loss and defeat, but sure and certain victory and celebration. These are the realities of the Christian life, lest we forget. These are the realities of the Christian life. Victory, hope, and joy, not loss and defeat. Because Christ was victorious, he overcame the world, he was crucified, his sacrifice was effectual. And because of this, he has the power in himself. And through the working of the Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to declare those whom he calls to be righteous and holy instead of the sinful people that we are at heart. And is that not the lesson that comes to us from Littleton, Colorado? And indeed, from our own hearts and from our children, 
that we are sinful people at heart. That these young men out there, what they did is a terrible shock and a terrible surprise, but not their capability of doing it. This should never be a shock or a surprise to us because we are sinful people from birth. And it is only by Christ's victory that we are able to see that there is victory and righteousness that reigns supreme, and justice as well. <clears throat> Through the life of Christ, the position of all who would trust in him was fundamentally changed. Changed because, as we read in verse 28, Christ came from the Father and entered the world. Changed because his purpose in coming was fulfilled and he was about to leave, having finished his work. For as he said, now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Why does he leave and return to the Father? Because it is done. It is finished as he was about to state on the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. The work is fulfilled. And there is nothing left to be done. No scrap left unfinished. No minor item that was overlooked. But instead, everything perfectly accomplished. Let us see what all was changed by this. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. The disciples now, from this point on, would approach the Father directly and he would give them what they asked. They would no longer approach Jesus for help. Although they would ask in his name and through his name, because it is only through his powerful working that we are able to approach the Father. But even as the curtain was soon to be ripped in the Holy of Holies, indicating that the worshiper no longer had to have that intermediary to be between them and God, the high priest, the other priest, they no longer had to have that person interposing. The Holy of Holies was an indicator that the work was accomplished and that the people were able now to approach the Father directly because of the victory of Christ. <clears throat> we see not only that they would no, not go to Christ, but would be allowed to go directly to the Father in Christ's name. When they approached the Father in Jesus' name, they would receive what they asked. <laughs> this was one of uh, Dad's favorites, favorite sayings, Matthew 7, verse 7. <laughs> He quoted it so often that, that all he had to do was give the reference. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be open unto you. <clears throat> this is the parallel passage. <clears throat> this is no small gesture, but instead a stunning gift. He does not say, go ahead, ask what you wish. <clears throat> he says that my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. <clears throat> The Lord has indicated this before, and in preaching on a previous passage to reveal this, I sought to emphasize the broadness of this promise, rather than to point out all the restrictions that would and could be tied to this promise. Nevertheless, it is important for us to understand this promise does not guarantee us carte blanche. It does not give us limitless credit to grasp with greed. Instead, it is necessary for us to see that this promise is given to us in the context of a suffering Savior. What you would ask in the face of a Savior who suffered as Christ did, 
is something different from what you would ask the one from one who is living in the lap of luxury with no sorrows and no difficulties. And so we as the people of Christ must remember this so that our requests are made holy by our consideration of the price that has been paid for us to have this privilege. You remember the story of David in the Old Testament when the plague was coming upon the people as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. And he saw the angel of death coming to Jerusalem. And he went up to Arana to get a threshing floor in order to build an altar and make a sacrifice to the Lord there. And the man said, I give it to you. It's yours, O king. The king said, Ah, I will not give to God what has cost me nothing. We must realize this as we bring our requests and petitions to the Lord. We are not free to come to the Lord willy-nilly, offering up frivolous requests. Strikes our mind. As soon as it enters our mind, it is spoken and uttered as a request. But instead, we come to the Lord understanding. Not that he doesn't want to hear the trivial things, because he does. He wants to hear all things. And one of the joys of having young children is to hear the things that they see fit, to lift to the Lord in prayer, because they are used to asking mother and their father for trivial things. Things that are, that we as adults frequently don't even think of, they will ask. Nevertheless, what we ask of the Lord, we must understand, we are in this position to ask it because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so it should not be an occasion where we say, we've got the open gates. We can ask for whatever we want. I will ask for all of these things that I would love to have. But instead, ask for worthy things. Our request must flow out of our love for him and desire for his glory. As we look through the prayers of these, his disciples, at the time following his resurrection and ascension, as we read in the book of Acts and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, We find countless amazing answers to prayer. Yet we find other examples in which the answers to prayer, if prayers there were, were definite no's. So we must understand that in our prayers, Father desires to give us and indeed has promised to give us whatever we ask. And yet our asking and his giving will and must be within his will and his plan. I cannot imagine that the disciples were not praying fervently for James, the brother of John, to be released from prison. As we read in Acts 12, just as they did for Peter, who was arrested following James's arrest. But while Peter was released by divine agency, so that the angel came, removed the shackles from his hands and his legs, separated him from the guards surrounding him on all sides, opened the bars of the prison, set him outside in the city, James had his head cut off. So we see that Christ is promising full answers to prayer, promising that we may approach the Father and beseech him, and we we will get what we ask for. And yet, he conditions the answers to what is within his will and within his plan. And that includes frequently his plan for perfecting his people and causing them to grow in holiness and righteousness. And as it says on the walls of many a high school, junior high school gym, 
no pain, no gain. And our prayers to the Father will be based upon his desire for us to grow in holiness. Because the goal, as we have seen throughout the Gospel of John, is that Jesus Christ might receive the honor and glory. Not his people. We share in the reflected honor and glory, but that Jesus Christ might be exalted. And so what do we find in our hearts and our lives with regard to prayer and request of the Father? James wrote words, <coughs> chapter 4, verse 2, <coughs> and I'm not applying these to us. You understand? I'm not applying these to us, but we must consider them well and hard. You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. One of the things that I did in looking at the news that I've looked at <coughs> over the past day or so with regard to this incident in Colorado is look for the word pray <coughs> in the midst of all the text messages and transcripts that I've read. Looking, hoping to find that pray <coughs> was mentioned. And I found, of course, you know, there's so much news out that, that one cannot possibly search at all. <coughs> I found that pray is mentioned very rarely. <coughs> Generally in passing, the president mentioned prayers for those in Colorado. The governor of Colorado mentioned it. Of course, the superintendent of schools of Littleton, and I understand this is a county school, so... It's peripherally related to the city. Of course, the superintendent's message did not mention pray. I think that we, as the people who understand the importance of prayer and have the direct order that through prayer we approach the seat of heaven, that we are promised that the Father will respond on our behalf as we pray, We, the people who understand that because of our access to the Father, we have this joy and this peace which transcend all understanding, even in the midst of the circumstances like this. We are people who understand prayer. We are people who should and must pray for the whole community, for the community as a whole, for the nation, for the world as a whole, because as we see through this situation, the world has no concept of prayer. The prayer is woefully absent. You do not have because you do not ask. Oftentimes we are ignorant of these glorious promises even as believers. We are distressed that our public schools and other public places are completely hostile towards prayer so that hardly a week goes by without another courtroom victory for those seeking to marginalize Christianity by shutting out religious practices away from any public expression. We had a recent issue of this with regard to the school board meetings. Now it's, you can't pray in school board meetings. What are we doing to insist that we are relying upon the Lord in these crises? We find through the events of this year that elected officials in public are of one mind in believing that dishonesty and corruption, sexual immorality, lying and contempt for our judicial system and rule of law are not significant enough to disqualify a man to be the leader of our nation. And yet, has our prayer intensified in the light of this revelation of the corruption of our land? We find that the wicked and vile sin of legalized abortion is steadily eroding our value of human life. So that we are just finishing, if you've seen the signs, I saw the signs in Abingdon, maybe signs elsewhere. 
<clears throat> a week of emphasis of protection for children, <clears throat> in which we are bemoaning the increase in child abuse, and we are fresh off the recent statistics that state that a majority of the people in California are falling in line with the states of Oregon and Washington and agreeing that doctors should help people kill themselves. But while wringing our hands, are we impressed with the urgency to fold them in devotion to prayer? <clears throat> we find that even in our community is resistant to the gospel. But are we approaching the throne of grace with prayer and fasting? I heard a, a talk by a lady on James Dobson's program, I think it was several weeks ago, this chance to listen on and heard about uh, difficulties that she had as she was going through high school. And I didn't hear the beginning of it, so I didn't hear all the, the items of it. The thing that impressed me most was that she stated that the way that she had gotten through this was because of the pressure of her family, and particularly of her mother. And she said she didn't understand it, but that, at, that through that year, year of crisis for her, her mother fixed dinner and didn't sit down with the family she found out later that her mother was spending that year in those dinner meals in prayer for her daughter in the next room. And I think of us. And I think of how ashamed we should be because of our lack of prayer. We hear it constantly about the way in which prayer meetings are the least <clears throat> uh, attractive, shall we say, meetings of the church. People of the church are not coming together to pray. My question is, are we as individuals coming together to pray with the Lord and me? Are we praying together as families? Or are we suffering lack of peace, lack of joy in the midst of these turmoils because we have not understood that these things are things over which we have no control other than through the power of prayer. We need to be wakened up by these things. Realize that prayer is the you know, gun control. <coughs> Metal detectors. <coughs> More police in the schools. What is going to change these things is a change in human hearts. And is it possible for boys like this, for high school students like this, to go about living normal lives, convincing everybody that they're reasonably sane, a little quirky, <clears throat> and yet have the hearts of darkness which these young men had? Yes, it is. Will metal detectors stop these things? It may limit the locale which they are able to exert their evil wickedness. But instead of demonstrating their hate and vitriol upon the school, maybe they'll get married and demonstrate it on their wife and their children instead. Have we accomplished anything by metal detectors? Ah, yes, our schools will be safe. But we have not changed the human heart. And so for us to realize in the midst of this and all of the other ungodliness and righteous, unrighteousness of our land that external measures will not succeed. 
close in using the, the striking example to us last week, <clears throat> last Saturday night, which I mentioned as an as a answer to prayer last Sunday in the service. When Cassie got up and came into me when I was finishing up work on the bulletin <clears throat> and said in the middle of the night, Daddy, Francis says her neck, her throat hurts. I said, well, I thought maybe she's allergic to something and but I followed I'm thankful that I followed Cassie back to the room and found their bed all sort of wound up and uh, in the process of checking on Francis and just letting her know you know if it was a sore throat there wasn't you know probably go away or drink of water or whatever realized that she had the strapping from the the quilt wrapped around her neck twice that's what we find here we can consider that what's going on in Littleton, Colorado, or anywhere else in our nation is an external issue, when in reality, it is an internal issue. And if we deal with it in the way in which I was intending to deal with Francis, Francis, you have a sore throat, go back to sleep, you wake up feeling better in the morning, and we miss what is really happening. Lives are at stake, and more than lives Eternity is at stake because souls are at stake. You and I, as the people who understand the power of prayer, must double, redouble, or begin our efforts to pray for our neighbors, our families, because no matter how good our efforts at raising our kids are, no matter how friendly we are to our neighbors, Unless God will change human hearts, there is nothing that can be done with the human state. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray your outpouring of gracious, compassionate mercy upon our nation that deserves nothing at your hand. We have received such abundant blessing. And even as happened to the Israelites, they became, as it says in Scripture, fattened, and through all of the outpouring of your blessings, they got smug. They considered that these blessings had come because of the work of their hands, and they turned from you in scorn and hatred. Our nation has done the same. We pray your forgiveness for our nation. We pray you to pour out mercy and forgiveness upon us. We pray you to bring conviction in human hearts that we would weep with the tragedy that is a part of our sinful lives, that we would seek you. We pray for your forgiveness for us, your people, because we have not lived as we ought and we have not prayed as we ought. We have not declared the joy and the peace that comes from trusting you to bring all things into victory so that righteousness and justice would prevail. We entrust these things to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.